certainly is. 25 minutes to two. Great to have your company. Well, believe it or not, it's National Science Week, a time to celebrate the wonderful work uh, our scientists perform around uh, Australia. But it's not all about test tubes and Bunsen burners. Just imagine for a moment uh, what uh, the world would be like. What world would we be living in if uh, we didn't have the wider world of science? There'd be no technology, no engineering. That means no mobile phones. Hmm, that might be good. Uh, But uh, no internet. No modern cars. We'd even still be using wood ovens and perhaps stoking the copper to do the washing each week. Let's not even think about what our health would be like. So let's uh, meet some of South Australia's top scientists, including our chief scientist, Dr Leanna Reid. Hello, Leanna. Great. Very good, glad good, to be good here. Good to see you. Professor Anton Van Hingden, how are you? Very well, thank Did you. I get it right? Uh, pretty close. Pretty Van close? Van okay, good. <laughs> um, and uh, the man who was crowned scientist of the year last Friday, Professor James Patton. How are you? Good to see you all. Um, look, um, let, let, let's start with you, perhaps, uh, Leanna, as Chief Scientist uh, for South Australia. Firstly, what does a Chief Scientist do? Are you the boss of all this mob or, or I'm what? I'm definitely the boss of this mob, <laughs> yeah. uh, No, I'm here to give my uh, sagely advice to, uh, to the government, uh, but I really see my role as advocacy for uh, our scientists and uh, really helping to, to grow the recognition of it, uh, like we're talking about today. Mm. And part of the problem is, isn't it, uh, most of uh, what you achieve goes on in the background, doesn't receive a great deal of publicity, you know, in, in comparison to other things in the news, in the news cycle. But there's an awful lot of work going on out there that uh, we should be applauding. Absolutely. And just to reinforce your point, uh, our previous Chief Scientist for Australia, Ian Chubb, uh, did a, a survey of a year 11 and 12 students, and only 4% of them thought that science was almost always useful in their everyday life while, of course, they're talking on their mobile phones yeah. and doing all the rest of the things that mm. you talk about. Mm. So it's, it's absolutely crucial that we get the, uh, the message out there. And there's a bit of a stereotype, isn't there, of, of um, you know, scientists wearing the lab coat, as I said, the Bunsen burner and you know, the test tube and so forth. Science is much more than, than, than the laboratory. Oh, it is in, uh, in all sorts of directions now. It's uh, uh, information technologies, the artificial intelligence that uh, Anton will talk about, um, or a, a great variety of fields. In fact, it's, you know, it's just everywhere. So it's uh, definitely not stereotypes of the past. So if you're talking about, you know, 4% of, of the kids uh, not, not appreciating it, uh, and we know we're not getting enough kids uh, going into the, to the field of science and technology and so forth, how do we get over that? What do we do? Um, you know, you have the in, in the high schools and our secondary schools, we have the science buffs and we have the non-science buffs. There's a bit of a chasm there, isn't there? There is, uh, and it really is quite a challenge. And you're right that we do have to get the, over that because, uh, you know, the reasons that we said. And, you know, you think of life expectancy, for example. When you, if you were born in 1900, you probably didn't live past the age 50. You Now your life expectancy is about 80. The children of our children will have a life expectancy of about 100. I mean, that's really within one generation. It's amazing mm. what's happening. Mm. So we have to get people to understand that. The other aspect, I think, is that... Um, Science will underpin most jobs in the future. So 75% of the fastest growing occupations are already require those STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths skills. So being skilled uh, in science is crucial to your, your jobs of the future to do that. 
How do we do it? Uh, there's no one answer. That's why we have the Science Awards. It's perhaps to give recognition. A colleague of mine said that um, he thought it would be great to bring his son along because he would actually get a chance to see in action what he was learning at school. And I think that's the key, really, that our children, more and more relatives of when I went to school, where they said, oh, you've got to do maths. So, oh, OK, I'll do maths. More and more, you have to do it in the context of why am I doing this? What's its application? Why is it relevant to me? So the really excellent schools, of which we have many, are teaching now and saying, here's a problem. What's the chemistry? What's the physics? What's the maths around it? Uh, and that's the answer perhaps in future, so that when, when those kids are going through high school, they won't lose interest because they'll say, gee, this is going to be important for me. And they'll uh, go to university and we hope and, and more and more get the jobs of the future. And the other thing too is we've got to keep in mind, there's an awful lot of of, uh, kids out there, the jobs that they will be performing in later life haven't even been invented yet. Yes, it's very exciting. It actually mm. was in my case, and maybe it was for my colleagues as well, but um, I ended up running a biotechnology company. Well, I could hardly say I was going to do that because biotechnology mm. didn't really exist when I was uh, just starting university. So it's very true, and there are a whole range of... Uh, of occupations that don't exist now. And the other thing we like to say is that to our, our students is, and you might be the one to invent them. So that's another, getting uh, our kids to be more entrepreneurial and start their own companies, uh, grow those companies of the future is going to be crucial. And it doesn't necessarily wipe out the kids, as I mentioned before, who are on the other side of the, the chasm in the, in the classroom, who are the, perhaps the arties or the more visual people, not, not, the, not the, uh, the maths and science people. It doesn't mean that they are not... Um, able to actually extend their interest into that area. We often talk about instead of STEM, it's STEAM now. Mm, so you put mm. arts into the yeah. STEM technology, engineering, yeah. arts, and maths. Uh, because of that, because the interface is very important. It's sort of, uh, um, I guess, design thinking, if you like, is often called. But the other aspect is that if the average person nowadays is not attuned to science to some degree, and as you say, there'll be different levels of that, then how are they going to interpret all the things that are going on? If, if the world is becoming so technologically focused and advanced, then uh, everyone needs a good education in it. And also, I think, you know, we're in this post-truth world that we hear about all the time. Hmm. How are you able to distinguish when someone tells you that vaccinations are, uh, are really bad for you? How do you make the judgment? You read it on Facebook and whatever social media. You have to be in a position to be able to make some informed decisions. So I believe everybody needs a good uh, foundation in science. Mm. Well, look, uh, we've also got in the studio with us uh, two of the uh, gentlemen who won uh, some of the science awards that uh, were on last Friday. Let's start with you, uh, um, Professor uh, uh, Patton, um, Scientist of the Year. Congratulations for a start. Thank you very much. Not a bad gig. Yeah. <laughs> um, long time coming? Yes, I suppose I've uh, been in this game since about 1980. Uh, and I, finished my, I did my PhD and finished that in 1979. So basically all of my sort of postdoctoral career has been working in this sort of area of infectious diseases. Um, and, and, and to pick up the point that we were discussing a moment ago, um, you know, we made the point about um, the debate about vaccinations and so forth. Mm. We need to have an understanding, don't we? Oh, absolutely, yes. I think we talk a lot these days about the threats that are being posed by 
uh, superbugs that are resistant to antibiotics. Well, one way of dealing with that issue is by having vaccines to prevent diseases in the first place. Now, the spread of superbugs is driven by uh, frequent use of antibiotics in the community. And if you don't get the infection, you don't get a prescription for an antibiotic and you reduce that sort of Darwinian selective pressure for both evolution and spread of uh, multiply resistant bacteria throughout, you know, throughout both human and animal populations. And so you know, vaccination is really the central plank of management of infectious diseases. It was the only thing we had prior to the development of antibiotics in the 1940s and 50s. Hmm. And uh, it remains probably one of the strongest weapons in our armoury for moving forward into the future. So there's two issues there in the debate. Uh, there's vers- firstly the, the anti-vaccine hmm. uh, voice, yeah. which seems to get an awful... You know, awful good hearing. Yeah, that must frustrate the absolutely it is, it is willing out of you. And I suppose uh, until sort of the advent of the internet, it was reasonably easy. It was difficult for people like that to get a voice. Um, the problem now with sort of, as you say, social media and uh, if people if people do a Google search on vaccination, sometimes the uh, website names are misleading, to say the least, in terms mm. of the likelihood of getting good information out of them. And some of the claptrap which was put up there uh, is just worrying. And you don't like to think of censorship, but boy, you'd like to take the microphone away from them. But the fi- there were figures released this weekend that were actually quite frightening as to the pockets of, of, uh, of communities all around Australia, but including here in Adelaide, who have really incredibly low rates of uh, vaccinations. Yeah, and, and uh, remarkably, some of the lowest rates are in some of the more, you know, sort of upper socioeconomic mm. areas mm. Um, that seem maybe these are people who have got and more of these people have got computers and are uh, searching and finding the wrong sort of information out there. Um, I suppose you know, this can only be sort of um, combated by broader education programs uh, pr- from the earliest of ages so that people really understand the benefits. You know, we think about, you know, the only infectious disease which has been wiped from the face of the earth was smallpox. Mm. That was achieved you know, largely with the, under the guidance of the late Frank Fenner uh, by the widespread use of an effective vaccine. And that vaccine was actually um, essentially developed, uh, at least the forerunner of it, by Jenner back in the late 1700s based on uh, empirical observations. And so here you saw the basic scientific principles of looking at what's happening around you, wondering why it's happening making the observation that milkmaids that got cowpox from, uh, you know, from, their, from their work never got smallpox when uh, you know, outbreaks occurred. And then the recognition that, therefore, this, you know, if you gave people cowpox, which was a, a, a non-life-threatening infection, you could protect them from the really big one. And, yeah, and that's the only one time it's worked. Mm-hmm. The other thing, I suppose, about infectious diseases, which is worth considering, is that you know, it's, it's still, they still kill more than 30% of the people on this planet. And there's only been two occasions in human history where the population of the Earth has actually decreased. And it wasn't the Great War or anything like that. Uh, it was, in fact, uh, the first, you know, one of them was the great flu pandemic, which spread around in 1918-19. And prior to that, when that, that killed something like 50 million people. Um, and uh, before that, we saw uh, the Black Death in the 14th century, the bubonic plague, which 
killed about half of the population of Europe uh, without sort of accurate figures from elsewhere. Mm. So we can get the message across that infectious diseases are still really big-ticket items in terms of the burden of disease in our community and also particularly in underprivileged communities. Um, how frustrating is it for you guys as, as scientists to, to, to you know, keep on reading the data that uh, the overuse of antibiotics, for example, is just helping us lose this battle against uh, infectious diseases and illnesses going forward? I mean, it's a pretty simple message. Don't, you know, for the doctors, for a start, yeah. don't overprescribe antibiotics and for the patients, don't take them. Yeah, look, it, it seems like a simple message, but, you know, the, the amount of antibiotics that are used uh, is, quite, is quite staggering. Mm. There's a lot of guidelines in place to limit, you know, you know, limit the use of um, antibiotics, which are frontline uh, medicines in humans. They, their uses are not, not used in livestock, for example. But nevertheless, there's concerns about cross sort of uh, cross sort of resistance, which could occur by related antibiotics being used in one field or the other. But you've, you, know, you think about the um, one of the problems we've got is that many infections, upper respiratory infections, are the vast majority are viral. But we have situations like meningococcal disease, mm. which is something where early use of antibiotics is absolutely critical if the patient is to survive without life-changing uh, disability. Um, then that has to be recognised very early and prescribed, and these early stages of infection are very difficult to distinguish from a viral infection. And so this, this, this is a great burden on a clinician trying to make that judgement, is this just an ordinary uh, viral infection or could it be these rare cases and meningococcal disease it gets a lot of publicity but mm. it's very rare mm. uh, could it be one of these if they get that one wrong then the chances of that patient surviving are much lower than they would have been mm. so it, it's a dilemma for everybody um, one of the things ways which we're sort of trying to address apart from the vaccination side of things to reduce the burden you know, the requirement for the use of antibiotics but is also to think of sort of novel ways of blocking infections and we can think about antibiotics is that they're developed largely from compounds naturally produced by one microorganism to kill and to kill its neighbors and give itself an advantage either in the environment or in a host niche or something like that and so this means that it has to have a mechanism itself to stop itself being killed by its own weaponry. So therefore, if there's an, a naturally produce, produced antibiotic, there almost by definition must exist somewhere in nature genes encoding the capacity to be resistant to it. And it's simply then just a matter of those genes being, being transmitted uh, horizontally from one strain of uh, bacterium to another or from a fungus to a, uh, to, a, to a bacterium. And bacteria are very, very good at mixing and matching their DNA. Uh, they shuffle it around at very high rates. And this is why resistance can spread so rapidly. So... We're looking at ways where we're selecting targets and developing completely novel drugs which aren't, don't have any sort of uh, resemblance to things which occur in nature and these ones should be refractory to the evolution of resistance or at least resistance would be, might take much longer to develop. Certainly a challenge and uh, one of many. We're talking to uh, some of the state's uh, top scientists. Uh, if you want to have a chat, 8223 0000. 
seven minutes away from two o'clock and uh, we've got some... Uh, well, the IQ of the studio has gone up uh, remarkably in the last 20 minutes, I can assure you. <laughs> um, we've got uh, our Chief Scientist of South Australia, Dr. Dr. Leanna Reid, with us, uh, Professor Anton Van de Hengel. Oh, look, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. I'll, I'll get there. And our Scientist of the Year, Professor James Patton, with us. Uh, uh, big uh, announcements made on uh, Friday night. And, um, uh, Anton, congratulations. You got a gong. Thank you very much. Mm. What was your gong for? So it was a collaboration award for a project that we ran with a local SME called LBT Innovations. So it's a, well, we constructed a device with them. We did the technology development um, on a device called APAS, which is an automated plate reader for agar plates. So agar plates are what pathologists use to grow specimens on. Mm -hmm. So if you have a blood test or some other kind of test, they will put some of it on one of these agar plates and allow it to incubate for a while and uh, you know look at what's on there in order to figure out what you've got. And the technology we developed takes photos of those plates and then analyzes the images to see what is growing on them. And it allows the pathologists to focus on the cases they should be focusing on, uh, greatly reduces the cost of that pathology process. But it also has created a great business opportunity for a South Australian SME. We The, the product got FDA approval which means that the American Food and Drug Administration have uh, certified it as being able to be used in a medical process in America, and that's the primary test for these kinds of devices internationally. And achieving that uh, kind of approval is, well, it's an incredible process, I can tell you. Um, you have to deliver trailer loads of documentation to these people, but it makes a huge difference and having had a, that device achieve that approval gives a fantastic business opportunity for an amazing local SMA. Mm. And that uh, that sort of pretty well sums up where we're coming from uh, in, in this conversation, doesn't it, Leanna? South Australia's role on the world stage is actually, uh, we're taking a bit, bigger chunk of that stage every year, aren't we? We are. Uh, we have tremendous uh, research capabilities mm. and Anton's work is helping us to address the next challenge and that's convert that into companies that we hope will stay here and grow in South Australia versus go off to the US and so forth. And so the, those companies, the companies that are going to succeed in future are going to have uh, much more a strong technology focus and so that's exactly the... LBT is exactly the kind of company we want to grow here. Mm. Um, which, again, we come back to where we began getting the younger generations interested and involved in science, are we heading down the right path? We're heading down there. It's slower than I would like it to be. Uh, but uh, we are starting to make some changes. You know, I think uh, our teachers are probably... Uh, we have uh, some unsung hero awards for, for scientists who... You know, are not out there. Um, I think all scientists are unsung heroes because we're not the type to uh, really lord ourselves to the world. And I think, you know, I think they're rock stars to the people who won these awards. Uh, but but uh, we do have some we call uh, actually do call unsung heroes. And I think teachers are that. We give some awards to teachers because mm. the teachers who, at the end of the day, you think back to why are you what you are now. It's probably that a teacher inspired you somewhere along the way. I am what I am because of a, of a, a science teacher. 
teacher. Uh, so they're absolutely crucial, and that's where the effort, I think, is going in. Uh, I think we need to uh, uh, look at how we pay our teachers and uh, reward them, um, and also how those teachers teach so that the teaching has to be much more in the context of why is this important to learn this bit of chemistry which is hard and I'm finding a bit less interesting than going off and playing footy or whatever. Hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, um, it, when, when children understand why they're doing something, they're much more engaged. Mm, absolutely, and as with everything, but, mm. but particularly in this case. Listen, thank you so much. A uh, really interesting area of discussion and uh, one that we could we could spend the next two hours on, but uh, unfortunately we can't. Uh, if kids uh, or parents are interested in uh, you know disco- discovering this a little bit more, where should, where should they go? Well, we have um, uh, RIOS is a, is a good uh, entity which is there to promote science. Um, so they could contact RIOS and they'll direct people to where they, they uh, want to get more information. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in and uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you uh, next time at the next awards. <laughs> Thank you. Fantastic. It's uh, a couple of minutes away from two. Coming up after two o'clock, uh, we're going to check in with the Windmill Theatre and their latest production. It's called Beep. <laughs> 